Um, so to start, let's just uh, go to God in prayer. So Jesus, we just thank you so much for this morning, for this opportunity, for this time to worship you, to praise you, Lord, as we continue this time of worshiping you through looking at your word, Lord. I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself to us this morning um, for the first time or as if it was the first time, Lord. Allow us to hear your word with fresh ears um, and to not allow it to grow stale in our lives, but to continue a sense of fervor and excitement for who you are and what your word has to say to us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So as uh, Graham said, I, uh, this heart song thing, uh, they said I could pick whatever I wanted to preach on. And obviously, you know, if anyone who's been around, I've preached a few times here at Wellspring. And every time I've preached up to this point, they've given me something to preach on. They, you know, they're like, hey, we're, we're in this sermon series. This is the date that you'll be preaching. This is what you'll be preaching on. And I've always said it would be so cool if I could pick whatever I wanted. I pick whatever I want. It'd be so cool. And then they said, you can do that. And it was like one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. <laughs> you ever like get what you wanted and you're like, oh shoot, now I actually have to do so. Like it was so tough. Like it took me s several weeks of like thinking about it, praying about it, talking to my wife, Krista about it. Like just, I mean, she was probably so sick of hearing, hearing me talk about it. When I told her what I was picked, I bet that she was like, she didn't say it out loud because she's a really nice person, but I bet in her mind, she was like, finally, decided something like let's move on with our life so it was actually really hard to pick something I landed on John chapter 8 which we'll we'll get into um but this heart song thing so so normally when I preach I'll tell like a little bit of my story a little bit of something about myself but I felt like in this in this context of this sermon series it was a little bit more necessary to share a little bit more details about myself and sort of what brought me to this passage so just a little bit about sort of my upbringing and where I'm coming from I was raised in a church uh, from as long young as I can remember, going to Awana, going to church on Sunday mornings, the whole thing. And um, anybody else raised in church? A couple people, um, not too many excited people. So I can tell that for you too, there was pros and cons to growing up in church. So some of the pros for me, so, you know, mom, if you're watching, um, some of the pros, and, you know, if you're raising your kids in church, some of the pros were some of the people that I got to interact with, right? Some of the people. So, you know, like my youth, one of my youth pastors, his name was Dwayne, this amazing guy, another guy who, who was an elder of our church who really took me under his wing in a, in a very amazing way and helped me learn how to, to teach and to and to grow some of my skills in that area his name was Joe and then another youth pastor named Heather these three uh, adults in my life really helped to shape my faith you know in conjunction with my parents these other adults really helped bring me along in my faith and then to the friends that I made at church and my youth group and all that kind of stuff were great friends and great people to have around and people that really pushed me towards healthy and holy things instead of the things that some of the kids at school were doing so so it wasn't all bad you know I don't want to paint a picture that it was all bad but but it also wasn't all good either. So the church that I grew up going to is a very conservative, non-denominational Christian church. And um, I didn't know any different. I didn't know any better from as long as I can remember. My mom tried out a few different churches when I was really young. But by the time I was like five or six, we landed at this church. Um, and I'm intentionally not saying the name of it because, I mean, it's like four hours away from here. But I don't want to badmouth anybody. I want to give anybody a bad rap. But they were a very, um, you could say, like inwardly focused church. They really didn't um, prioritize outsiders. And not that anyone used that word, but that was sort of the feeling. Like when someone from the outside came in, it wasn't a very welcoming environment. It was more of an environment for those who are already saved, those who already had that sort of existing relationship with Jesus and that they could come and, and go deeper with that. Um, and that's amazing. Please hear me. Discipleship is so important. Going deeper in our faith is so, 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 so important. 
but that's only one of the functions that the church is supposed to exist for. And I had to learn years later, I, you know, so I had to kind of unlearn. And, I, you know, the, the, the scripture that we're talking about today is something that when I came to this scripture and really read it for myself for the first time, I had to, I had to unlearn some of the things that I had learned. Um, anyone in the room had to unlearn something that they've learned in their life, whether at home or at church or anywhere else? Probably all of us. Yeah, probably all of us. Um, because what I learned, and I read this book later too, that, that the phrase in this book that kind of brought it all together was that church is supposed to be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Um, that, that's by Tim Keller. It was, that, that quote, I can't even remember the name of the book, but that quote just has stuck with me so for, since that point that, that the church that I grew up w- going to was a little bit more like a museum. Everyone in leadership was 55 plus, um, and, and the people that were invited into the church were those who kind of already had their life together. Um, there wasn't really a, a place for those who, who were living life recklessly and, and their life was a mess and they wanted to, to seek the truth to find something better and something different. Um, so we're going to do something a little, uh, a little weird, a little different, but we're, we're family, so we can do weird stuff. Because I know when your uncle comes over for Thanksgiving, it gets weirder than it's going to get here this morning. So I'm going to show you a picture. So, Tom, if you could put that up. So I don't know how well you can see it. There's a, a guy here and a girl here. Um, and I want to ask you this question. Of these two people, if you can see the picture, which one would you trust to care for the person that means the most to you in your life? So whether that's your parents, your grandparents, your siblings, your kids, maybe your fur babies, whoever means the most to you, which one of these two individuals would you trust with that responsibility? And a question I'd like to ask in conjunction with that, what factors are you using to make this decision? Based on what you're seeing, what factors are you taking into consideration to make this decision? And and what's funny is what we're doing when we see a picture like this is we're judging these two people, right? We're judging based on which person is more trustworthy. We all like to say like, you know, I, I'm now a member of Planet Fitness, proud member. I go like once a week, if that. And it's like judgment-free zone, right? Like no judgment, whatever like that. But judgment is something that we judge everybody all the time. Like when I walked up here, if you've never met me, you're like, who is this guy? You're eyeing me up, you're sizing me up, like the whole thing. And this too is why going to Six Flags or the mall and people watching is so much fun. Because we get to judge all the people and all of their life decisions and it's so good, like so, so, so good. I mean, that that alone is worth the the season pass to Six Flags. Just the people, it's it's very entertaining. Take the kids there all the time, and it's really good stuff. And so, so the thing is, so judgment in our society and our culture is something that we've created to be something very negative. But actually, the ju- oh, they can't really see that probably. But I'll read it for you. So it's the the definition of judgment is the ability to make considered decisions or come to sensible conclusions. And now on face value, the idea of considered decisions and sensible conclusions, those would be probably things that we would see as good things. We wouldn't see someone coming to a sensible conclusion and say, you're a jerk or you're an idiot. But when we think about someone judging us, we often feel frustrated by that or feel annoyed, like, who are you and what, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the other thing too, so we can judge someone as like trustworthy or untrustworthy. We can judge them as guilty or not guilty, good or bad, whatever it might be. As an example, I judged that Krista was a cool person, so I asked her to marry me. I judged her and I made a sensible conclusion that I would like to spend more time with this person and now we're married, so good for me. 
So judgment in and of itself doesn't have to be a bad thing. Where judgment does become a problem is when you judge someone else and you start thinking based on your judgment that you're somehow better than that person. It's not a matter of judgment as that's a bad thing, but when it starts to divide us, it becomes a bad thing. Or when it's, you know, this is huge too, as as, as Christians, we know that God has made every human being in his image, and when we judge someone enough to forget that, when you look at somebody's decisions or you look at somebody's appearance and you forget that they were made in the image of God based on the opinion that you're forming about them, that is when it really becomes problematic. And another issue, um, so Tom, if you can go to the next picture slide. I don't know if that's two slides from now or one slide from now. But ow. So another issue is when we make judgments and we only see part of the picture. So this says everyone sees what you appear to be. Few really know who you are. So if you can't see it, the guy is actually holding a bouquet of flowers, and the girl is holding a hatchet. So based on now, and the point was kind of to trick you, like that's why I only showed part of it to start. So based on what you see now, which of these two people would you trust to care for someone that you love? Right? Like, I mean, I know for me, seeing the second picture, my opinion has very much significantly changed. And so the point of doing this silly little exercise is to just get us thinking, to get us thinking about the idea of judging others and, and only seeing part of the puzzle, but thinking that we have the full story and thinking that we have it all figured out. So this morning, we're, again, we're going to be looking at John chapter 8, and there's kind of three groups of people. So there's Jesus, and then there's three other groups of people, or three other camps of people, um, and they're all very different. And so Jesus is going to interact with all of them in very different ways. And instead of looking at all of the ways that each person or people are wrong, maybe we could look and see how can we relate to those people? How are we similar to those people? So we're going to start in John chapter 8, verse 2. Uh, it'll be behind me on the screen or um, in the Wellspring app or in your Bible app or however you want to find that. Um, so it's John chapter 8, we'll starting in verse 2. And it says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. So Tom, you could leave this up for a second because I'm going to kind of unpack some of the elements quickly. So it says early in the morning. So obviously this is a priority for Jesus. If it it wasn't, he would have slept in, hung out, had a brunch, done the whole thing. And then later on in the afternoon, I I guess I'll get to the temple. I guess I'll get to church today. It was early in the morning. So it's a priority. And again, it says, so he came again to the temple. So again, this shows a a habit or a pattern of behavior. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not a one-off. It's not a fluke. It's something that he prioritized and did on a regular basis. And to the point that people started trusting him as a teacher, He's a carpenter. He's not a trained teacher like some of the other people who have been in the temple. But people started coming to him, and he sat down and taught them. You can see that there's a relaxed posture for Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, uh, something that he felt like he needed to run in circles to get people's attention. He just sat down, and whoever would come to him, he would teach them. And we're going to continue in verse 3, and which says, The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in their midst. So again, you can leave this up for just a second. So scribes and Pharisees, anyone who doesn't know about biblical history, biblical culture, um, the scribes and the Pharisees were kind of like the religious elite. They were the teachers of the law. They were the enforcers of the law. And in their culture and in the Jewish society at that time, they were very highly respected. 
that if, uh, if a Pharisee came into a room, people would pay attention. If the Pharisee had something to say, people would kind of perk their ears up and pay attention. If you think about, you know, the, just the answer to the question, we all might have slightly different answers to this, but who are the most important people in our society? Who are the most important people in our life? That when they come in the room, you pay attention, right? You, you don't ignore those people. Um, you're like, whoa, okay, this person's here. Now I really have to be on my A game. So the Pharisees were those people. Now they brought a woman who was who had been, the phrase is, caught in adultery. Now, of course, this is PG entertainment, so we're not going to get into the details of speculating what caught in adultery really meant, but I think if we use briefly our imagination, we can kind of have an idea of what that might have been. So again, so in this society, the scribes and the Pharisees were at the top of the totem pole, and women, unfortunately, in this society were very much so at the bottom. And so they bring this woman in who's caught in adultery. Now think about this for a second. Like, how embarrassing would this be? We don't know if they were, gave her enough time to put her clothes back on. We don't know what kind of state she's in. And, and she's just brought in, and they're like, here. So they, they put her in the midst, and you could just see, like, they have all this power, but in their power, they're using it for ill intent and for disrespect. We're going to continue um, in verse 4, and verse 4 says, They said to him, so this being the scribes and the Pharisees, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So this is the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the most powerful people in the society. And they see this guy, Jesus, coming into the temple on a regular basis, teaching, and people are paying attention. And it's possible that Jesus's message conflicted or, or contradicted some of the message that they had to say. And so we could tell, like anytime someone has power, they want to hold on to it, right? Nobody who has power just wants to let go of it. That's why every politician wants to be reelected. They want to hold on to the power that been given. Is this cutting out or is that just me? So these are people that had the power. They wanted to hold on to it. So they try to set this trap for Jesus. Because if Jesus, Jesus has in their mind one of two options. His options would be that Jesus could say, throw stones at her. Kill this woman because the law says we should do that. Um, but if he was preaching a message of grace, then that undermines his message. Um, but on the flip side, if he says, no way, don't do that don't throw rocks at this woman, then he's going against the law, which was revered at that time, and then it would also, in a way, undermine his teaching. Because if he undermines the law, then the people at the temple would be like, well, we can't respect this guy as a teacher because he doesn't respect our, our most important texts. Like, we can't do this. So then we continue in the same verse, and so we see that, okay, these are the most important people in society, right? It would be like, if the prime minister walks into a room or something like that and lets and, and says, hey, what do you think we should do about this? And let's see how Jesus responds. I absolutely love this. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. No words. They say, hey, Jesus, this woman's here. Should we kill her? Should we stone her? And he's like, all right, cool. And he's just like here, like drawing in the dirt. Like, we don't know what he's drawing. I would give any amount of money to know what Jesus was drawing in the dirt. I did so much study and research to see like what ideas people had, because it's not fact. None of this is fact. It's not written down. So we're just make, we're speculating, right? But some, some places said maybe it was something that had to do with what he was already teaching. 
before he was interrupted. Maybe he was writing, I love this, this uh, speculation. Maybe it was something to do with some of the sins in the lives of the scribes and Pharisees that everybody kind of knew about, but nobody really talked about. Um, kind of like calling them out in writing. Or maybe he was just doodling. Like maybe he literally was just forcing them to be patient. And they felt like they were so important. They felt like they probably deserved an immediate response. Right? I, I asked you this question. Give me a response right now. And so he bends down and draws in the dirt. So for a second, let's pause. Let's look. So we have, like I said, we have three groups of people. So we have the scribes and the Pharisees who are kind of the top of the top, the elite sort of people. Uh, we have the, the crowd that came to him for teaching, the kind of the average temple attender, the average church attender, like, like yourself and myself. And then we have the woman who in their society was kind of um, at the bottom of the list. And so for, for each group, we have the, the crowd of people who came. They were just at the temple for the day. They wanted to get some teaching. They wanted to see some friends. And all of a sudden, they're trying to listen to this guy, Jesus, and hear what he has to say. And they have this interruption, right? They have this chaos that they're thrust into. And so they would have some choices. Would they walk away? Would they just say, forget this? Like, if this Jesus guy is inspiring all this chaos, like, I don't want anything to do with it. Or maybe the, the message was interrupted that they were trying to get. So like, oh, I guess I'll just go home now or whatever they wanted to do. You know, so the question was, should we stone this woman? So some of them might have been collecting stones because they're like, well, yeah, I guess we should. So let's get ready. Like, we're, we're all here. So let's make it happen. Would they have just been kind of annoyed by the interruption? Like they're trying to listen to Jesus. And even though the Pharisees are so powerful and important and respected in some way, sometimes powerful and important people do things that annoy us, right? Sometimes not getting into details on that. But how can we relate to this group of people? So myself and probably most of us in this room are probably like middle class by societal standards, like average individuals. And, and in our lives, we've, we can face distractions. So would this group of people have been distracted and turned away from Jesus by their distractions? We could ask that same question of ourselves. Would we in our lives and in the chaos and in whatever happens, are, do we get distracted and turned away from Jesus, turned away from our life with God? The next group would be the elite of society. And of course, these, this is the easiest group to be annoyed with. But if we're really honest, we probably have more in common with them than we'd like to admit. But yeah, like people in general, like any person you look at, the more power they have, the more they want because it's never enough. The more money someone has, the more they want because it's never enough. And again, to the question, how can we relate to this group of people? I'm only speaking for myself. I can't speak for anybody else, but there have been points in my life where I've let my pride get in the way of given situations or conversations, and I've made poor decisions based on my arrogance or pride because I saw things a certain way, and I didn't want to hear what somebody else had to say about it, and then I had to put my foot in my mouth later because I made the wrong choice, and if I heard someone else out, if I humbled myself, it would have gone better. And, and too, like, I mean, we all probably have high points of our life where we feel like I'm at, I'm at the top of my game. I'm at, you know, I'm at, I'm at the high point of my life. Like for me, you know, graduating from school and getting married and having kids and all of those things, like these are high points of my life where I feel like, oh man, like these are, these are high points of my life. And so we could ask of them, can they, could they see past their pride to learn something from Jesus in that moment? And we can ask ourselves the same thing. Can we see past our pride to learn something from Jesus in this moment? And then we have the, the woman, the lowest of society, given no voice, given no respect, given, cast aside, given no regard. And we, if we all sat around and told our life stories, we've probably had moments where we've been pushed to the side, where we've been disrespected, where we've been counted out. 
And she would be asking, literally, am I going to die today or is Jesus going to save me? And we can ask the same in a similar way of, am, am I going to face the consequences of sin today or is Jesus going to, to save me from my sin and save me from myself? What I love, I, I asked the band to play that, that same God song, love that song. Um, and what I love about that song is that it, it references four individuals from the Bible, all of whom without God's intervention would have been nothing, but God used them in magnificent ways. Jacob, just a guy born into a family that basically had nothing. He had 12 sons, so you know he had nothing. And God used him to create the nation of Israel and his family line to create the nation of Israel. Moses, if you know the story of Moses, literally put in a basket and sent down river so that he wouldn't be killed and then picked up by Pharaoh's family and then raised in royalty and then takes over and leads the people of God through the Red Sea. Another person who started out literally nothing and God used in magnificent ways. We have Mary, who was a young woman, who the only, the only credit that's given to her in the Bible is that she just loved the Lord. She sought after God. And because of that, she was then made the mother of Jesus. And lastly, David, who was a shepherd boy, young guy, probably didn't know too much, probably not too much there. And still, God chose him to be the king of Israel. And through all of these people came the line of Jesus. So these people who in every way, shape, and form are insignificant to our societal standards, God made them to be significant. And so part of what I love about this passage of Scripture and why I chose it is because, again, just sharing a few examples from my life, there have been points where I felt like I was at the top. There's, most of my life felt like it's in the middle. And there have been points where I felt like I'm at the bottom. But Jesus engages in each with each of these groups of people in a way that shows that he actually cares about these groups of people. So, so this is a passage of Scripture, and as we go on, we'll see that more and more, that shows us that God is not a God of partiality. If you have a lot of money, it doesn't mean that God loves you more. If you serve more in the church, it doesn't mean that God loves you more. God lo God's love for you is unchanging. He is the same God. So whether you do a lot or do nothing, whether you give a lot or give nothing, God's love for you is never changing. Now, he does invite us to respond to his love, and we'll, we'll see that as we continue. So let's continue into verse uh, 7 as we go on, and it says, And as they continued to ask him, so Jesus tried to force them into patience. Remember, he's still, he's still down here, right? He's just drawing in the sand. We have no idea how long it's been. It could be five minutes, ten minutes, an hour. Who knows? But as they continue to ask him, they're, they're growing impatient. They're used to being people of power. They're used to be people, when they ask a question, they get a response like this. So they're growing impatient. They're say, they as continue to ask him, Jesus finally stands up. Jesus finally stands up to address this group of people. And I bet, oh my goodness, I bet that they're anxiously awaiting his response. Like, I can't wait for him to respond so then nobody likes this guy anymore. I can't wait for him to destroy his whole teaching because either he's going to go against grace, which is his message, or he's going to go against the law. And either way, he's beat. Either way, he's going to lose respect. But instead, Jesus finds a third option that I have to imagine was not on their mind when they posed this question. And Jesus says, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once more, this is so funny, once more he bends down 
and continues to write on the ground. So they ask him this huge question. He makes them wait. He gives them a quick response, one sentence, and then bends down and keeps on drawing, keeps on writing, whatever he's writing. This is a significant mic drop moment. If there ever was one in the case of history, this important group of people is like, hey, Jesus, what should we do? And Jesus completely flips the script on them. He completely finds an option that they never would have seen coming. And for, okay, I'm not going to speak for anybody else. For me, when I read stuff like this, I'm like, yeah, stick up for the underdog and screw the big guy and like whatever, you know, like, yeah, down with the man and all this stuff. Like my inner rebel is like celebrating and having a party. (laughs) But the thing is, that is unhealthy and immature thinking if I stay there because what about my life? right? Like, what about my inability to see my own sin instead of the sins of others? Have there, has there ever been a point where I or anyone in this room has ended a friendship with someone because you found out that they were talking crap about you behind your back? And so you're like, I can't be friends with that person. But then either you did before or you're doing it now, you're doing the exact same thing that you were upset with them about. Or you find out that someone cheated on you. So then you justify cheating on them, even though you're still together. Or you know that everyone else is cheating on the test, so you do it too. That like you're okay with that sin because I want to do it now. It, was, it wasn't okay when you did it, but now that I want to do it, I'm going to use your sin to justify my own. Or again, lying, you know, someone lies to you and you start lying to other people. Or like you, you, everyone is lying, you're the only one who gets caught and you feel upset and you feel like it's unfair that you got caught in your lie, but nobody else did. See, the thing is, when we aim Jesus' words at somebody else, it's always exciting. It's always a celebration. It's always a party. Because if Joe is the problem, then I'm good. Jesus, take care of Joe. Right? But the problem, yeah, Joe. But the, Joe goes like this. But the problem, the, the difference, though, is that when we aim Jesus' words at ourselves, which is where they belong, it should inspire much more contemplation than celebration. Another thing quickly is that Jesus does here clearly make clear you should be focused more on the sins of yourself than anyone else. Just as a quick aside, Jesus does later say that you should take the log out of your own eye. So look at your own sin and your own focus. And the log is a big thing. You know all your sins before you go and take the speck, the small thing out of your neighbor's eye or brother's eye. So so it does say this, though, that you, you are supposed to do that. Like as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are supposed to encourage one another towards holiness. To continue using my friend Joe as, a, as an example, if I am become aware of a sin in Joe's life, I shouldn't say, there's no love in me saying, well, oh yeah, but like he used without sin, cast the first stone, and I'm not going to throw a stone at him because I've sinned too. Like, yeah, I should humble myself and I should be in that place of, of being grateful for the justification that I find in Jesus' name. But then also I should go to Joe and say, hey, brother, listen, I love you, man. And like, I, I've seen this in your life and, and I know that sin leads to destruction. So I don't want you to continue going down this road. How can I help you here? What can we do here? You know, like not in a way of saying, Joe, you're wrong. Uh, we can't be friends anymore because you're doing this. Thing. Like, no, that's not that's not the approach. But but there should be that that second phase of phase one is deal with like deal with me me and jesus is step one but then phase two is definitely as brothers and sisters in christ we should be spurring one another on towards holiness and so this is uh, kind of the second reason why i picked this passage is because this is something you know like i said grew up in a in a in a Christian church, very conservative, very inwardly focused, not so keen on the outsider. Um, 
And, and when I read this passage of scripture, I kind of ha- had to hit this roadblock and this sort of fork in the road. I had to decide, do I allow scripture to be the authority in my life or am I going to allow my experience to be the authority in my life? Because if it, my experience is authority in my life, then I can continue going on that road of I'll pretty much, you know, like primarily be friends with only Christians and only spend time with Christians and only do Christian things in Christian places and Christian, 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 Christian. Again, those are amazing things. Nothing against those things. Those are extremely important for the maintenance and benefit of our faith. But then also there should be an outpouring and an overflowing of that. So so I had to decide, right? I had to decide, do I keep going on the path that I've been on or do I take scripture at its word? And I say, wow, like if if Jesus is saying, focus more on your own sin than the sins of others, then I, you know, I had to hit that fork in the road and I took the, the way of Jesus. And that's part of the reason why I picked this passage. So again, for me, it's, it's twofold. It's that, that I can relate to each group of people here. And I know that no matter where I am, that Jesus is there with me. And it's also that this was very formative for me in growing into making my faith my own because it taught me that my experience wasn't everything and it forced me to make a choice. Am I really going to follow Jesus even when it goes against my opinions, my thoughts, my beliefs, my preferences? Because, of course, it's much easier to just hang out in a group of Christians because we all believe the same thing. We're all trying to live the same way. That's an easier way to go. So it forced me to kind of think outside of the box that I had created and had been created for me through uh, various aspects of my upbringing. So we'll continue in verse 9. Um And we'll see their response when Jesus says he was without sin, cast the first stone. We'll see what their response is. So, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So one by one, the stones start hitting the ground, right? And imagine like this woman, like you think the stones are going to start hitting you doesn't say this is happening, so I'm not saying it definitely is, but like, just imagine this. Like, If she has her eyes closed, staring at the ground, just waiting for the first stone to hit her in the chest or the head or whatever, whatever it is, and one by one, she just starts hearing them hit the ground, she probably would have jumped because like, oh, like, it's a loud noise, but hit the ground, and it hits the ground, and it hits the ground, it's starting with the older ones because older people are wiser, whether younger people like myself like to admit it or not. They're, they're wiser, but another flip side of that is that they also have lived a longer life and have more opportunities to have sinned. If you live for 10 years, you probably have sinned less than someone who's lived 100 years. So so those who are older ones started walking away, and then you figure the younger ones kind of followed suit, like, oh, I guess if they're walking away, maybe, maybe I should shut my mouth and walk away too. And so Jesus is left, it says, alone with the woman. So we don't know if there's, there's still other people in, in the area, like the people who were there um, that he was teaching in the beginning of the story. Um, but essentially, the only main characters of the story that are left are this woman and Jesus. And so we're going to see how this unfolds and what happens as we continue reading into verse 10. So Jesus, again, stands up. This is a constant stand, standing and sitting event here because he starts sitting when he's teaching. Then I guess they come in. He stands up and hears them. He bends down. He talks, stands up talks to them. He bends down again. He stands up again. So here we are. And, the woman, and he, Jesus says to the woman, he addresses her directly. 
Before, this was a group of Pharisees that were talking about this woman and putting her embarrassingly and disrespectfully in a group of people. Like, imagine if someone barged in the door right now and just put a person in front of us and like, hey, this person did something wrong. You should do something about it. Like, imagine how embarrassing. I mean, really, that would be for all of us, but especially the person in question. But Jesus says directly to her, woman, where are they? Had, has no one condemned you? And I love the rhetorical questions because if you look around, you see nobody else is left holding rocks. Like Jesus already knows the answer. And I, I love this because to me, it's this. No one has addressed this woman before this. She's been accused. She's been disrespected. She's been humiliated. And, and Jesus kind of gives her this layup of a question. You know, he doesn't ask like, hey, tell me every sin you've ever committed. He doesn't say like, hey, how many, how many partners do you have right now? How many times have you cheated or done this and this and this? He gives her this layup of a question that if you look around, like if I said like, what color is that light? Like anybody could look at it and just be like, all right, it's blue. Cool. We're moving on. Like so easy of a question. And to me, it's a help for this woman to kind of let her guard down. Like, oh, it's an easy question. I'll answer that. No problem. But she doesn't just answer it. She says, no one Lord. Now, the group of Pharisees said, teacher, what would we do with this woman? But the woman changes it and says, no one Lord, Put, putting Jesus on the throne of the situation, not just as a teacher, but as Lord of the situation. And Jesus says to her, neither do I can get, condemn you. And he says, go and live your life however you want to. You do you, have fun, live for your happiness. If you want to go back and finish the business that was interrupted by these Pharisees, just go for it. Have a blast. Oh, wait. It says, go and from now on sin no more. Now, why does Jesus say that? What's the significance there? Again, Jesus is going to interact with people from the top to the bottom in a way that shows respect and dignity for those people and calls them all to a life of holiness because a life of sin leads to death and destruction. And it doesn't take long of turning on the news or looking around to see the kind of destruction that sin causes. And Jesus, knowing this, says, go and sin no more. Stop sinning. Stop living your life in destruction. Now, when he says sin no more, Jesus is a smart guy. He knows that as human beings, we do sin. But to me, what he's saying is more leave your lifestyle of sin. Don't continue going to places or hanging out with people or, or, or going on websites that are naturally going to cause you to fall into sin. Take those things away and pursue a life of holiness. It's understood that we're going to keep sinning, but are we living an intentional lifestyle of sin is the question that I think Jesus is kind of pushing us to ask in our hearts. Um, so something I forgot to put on the slides because I forget to do things sometimes um, was so we have values at Wellspring Church and one of them is daily surrender. And the question that we ask is, how can I pursue Christ likeness today? And we talk about Christ likeness. I had an idea of who Jesus was when I was a child and when I was growing up in church. And I had to shift my perspective because of what the Bible actually has to say about Jesus. So we're, when we talk about Christ likeness, I would like to say actual Christ likeness. Not like who Jesus is on your greeting card, but who he is in the scriptures. And how can we pursue that? How can we, how can we make our lives to be more like Christ? How can we make our lives to be more like the life that Christ has called us to? So when you walked in the door, you were handed a rock. And I want you all to, to pick up that rock and hold it in your hand. And if I were to tell you every sin I've ever committed, 
some of you may be tempted in one of two directions, okay? So you might be tempted to pick up that rock and throw it at me and say, how are you up there preaching right now? You have no place on this stage. You have no place with this mic in your hand. You have no place preaching the word of God because of the things that you've done. And maybe there'd be some of you who would be tempted to hand me the rock or hand it to someone next to you and ask someone to throw it at you. Like, hey, listen, if that's all this guy did, then I need to, like, I'm down and out. Like, I need to be stoned and killed right now. Like, no more opportunities. But the thing is, Jesus is calling you to a life with him beyond a life with a rock in your hand or a rock being thrown at you. Our big idea for today is that grace received should lead to grace extended. When we receive the grace of God, it fills us and makes us whole, and we should then go and extend that grace. Again, the church that I grew up going to was really all about the receiving of grace and not quite as much about the extension of it. And that's part of the puzzle, but not the whole thing. So what we're going to do, again, I like doing weird stuff. So we're going to start with a weird thing. We're going to end with a weird thing. But um, so I'm going to put some buckets up here, okay? And we're going to put the band is going to play one more song. It's called Oh, Come to the Altar. And I'm going to ask every person in this room to come up to this altar, as we could call it, and to drop your stone, to leave behind a life of judging others to a place of division and destruction, and to follow Jesus and to, to say, I'm dropping this stone. And just as Jesus called the woman to do, I'm going to go and sin no more. The bridge of the song says, Oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Bow down before him. Christ is risen. And I hope and pray that this, that anyone who came and dropped their rock up front, that it wasn't just because the person sitting next to you did it, that it was a true expression of your heart to bow down before the Savior to leave your rock behind, and to praise the Lord this morning. It's my prayer that as we finish out this song and as we go into our week and as we go out into the world, that we go as people humbled by the grace of our God to the extent that we choose to extend it to others. Let's praise our God who is a great and mighty Savior. Wow. I look at the buckets full right now. And every stone in this bucket probably has a name on it. A name of someone that maybe we've been showing judgment to. We have someone in our life that we have been unfair with and full of judgment with, and we're dropping these stones. And the reality is some of these stones have your own name on it. You've gotten to a place where maybe you've received God's forgiveness, but you haven't forgiven yourself yet. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. This week, you might need to take action. It's all good to, on a Sunday morning, to get caught up and drop a stone. But if we don't do anything with the text, then what are we even doing? So this week, maybe you need to send a text that person that you've been full of judgment with and just, man, you've been wrapped up and you've been focusing so much on someone else that you haven't even taken the time to look at yourself. You maybe need to send a text and say, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've been putting you through this. I'm sorry I've been doing this. And you need to take action. Some of you this morning 
need to begin a process of forgiving yourself. You've received the forgiveness of God, but you've been so wrapped up in the past. You've been so wrapped up in the the judgment that God is saying, I have set you free, but you haven't freed yourself yet. And maybe this morning you need to get to a place of saying, I am leaving the stone behind. So this week, do something and begin a process of leaving forever that stone behind.